Hebrews chapter 9, we'll read verse 23 down through the end of the chapter. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening. We thank You, Father, for a time set aside to gather together around Your Word in the middle of a week, we pray, God, that for these few moments, you would help us to put aside the, the demands of the week and the busyness of this day and the things that await us tomorrow to look at your word and the things that you have to say. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has made uh, this sacrifice, not in the, the copy of the heavenly things, but in the heavenly place itself. And that when he comes again, it is without reference to sin because sins have been dealt with. God, we pray that we would be those who eagerly await him. God, give us hearts that love him more and more. And that look for him. That look after him. That watch him as we run, as we saw Sunday. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to um, follow up on what we've been looking at in the book of Leviticus. And if you want to turn back there, we'll look at a few verses as we get started here. Um, In Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4, speaking here of the burnt offering, the Bible says, He shall lay his hand, this is the person bringing the offering, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And it's this idea of atonement that I want to talk about tonight. The word atonement appears 51 times in the book of of Leviticus. The the book of Leviticus is very much about atonement. And uh, it is what's necessary for us to be able to come into the presence of God and to be reconciled to God. Another uh, truth that accompanies this idea of atonement, or atonement is necessary for this truth, we might say, and that is forgiveness. There is no forgiveness without atonement. If atonement doesn't take place, then we can't be forgiven. And these two ideas are often seen also in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 20. He shall also do with the bull, just as he did with the bull of the sin offering, thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Or in verse 26, all its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, 
as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. And this occurs again and again also. I'm not going to read all the references, but I'll give you one more. It's in chapter 16. And while you're turning to Leviticus 16, do you happen to know what Leviticus 16 is about? It's the Day of Atonement. It's the, uh, the setting that day apart and the, the regulations for it. And so here's a day set aside for atonement, the purpose of atonement. And chapter 16 and verse 30 says, For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Why will you be clean? Because you've been cleansed by means of atonement. And so atonement is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But we could back up a step perhaps and ask the question, is atonement strictly necessary, period? Not just for sin, but is atonement necessary? And in the strictest sense, no. And what I mean by that is if God did not determine to save, then he had no need to provide for atonement. We need atonement, but if he doesn't determine to save, then... His justice is carried out. He doesn't have to provide for atonement. When he determined to save, then atonement is necessary. Now, there are some, we're going to talk about this in a moment. There are some who would even question then, was there not another way? Surely there's many ways and God just chose this way instead of other ways because this is the way he wanted to do it. But there's actually a term that uh, um, you'll probably never need again, but um, it is this, uh, consequent absolute necessity consequent to God determining to save atonement becomes an absolute necessity it's not that there were many ways that he could have saved and he chose this one but to answer all the requirements of the law of to, to appease his wrath to uh, vindicate his justice to, to do everything that needs to be done atonement becomes an absolute necessary necessity consequent to his having chosen to save. He didn't have to redeem anyone. He doesn't redeem fallen angels. 2 Peter 2.4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned. He didn't have to spare us, but he did. And having determined to save, then this becomes necessary. I think we see some hints of this in Scripture also. Um, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, as Jesus is in the garden preparing for the cross, he prays to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. If it's possible, let it pass. It's not possible. Or in Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, talking to those men, verses 25 and following, he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now again, there are some that would argue that it's necessary because... Out of all the ways that it could have been done, God determined this was the way. And so it's necessary after that. But um, I hope to show you otherwise in a moment. Before we get to that, though, 
there have been a number of different ways throughout history that people have tried to describe the atonement or define it. And a lot of those ways have tried to bypass the idea of God's wrath needing to be appeased. And so atonement's possible. Christ, you know, it really is the idea that God did it this way because he wanted to, many of them. Uh, but not because appeasement needed to be made. And so I'd like to look at those briefly, and I hope not to bore you to death with them. Hang on with me, please. And what I'd like to do as we get toward the end is show how the Old Testament uh, pictures of these sacrifices demonstrate that Christ must die. None of these others make sense in light of the Old Testament sacrifices that we just looked at. So there are several of these views. One of them is the ransom theory. And it you know, kind of takes the idea of Christ purchasing us with his blood. And it would ask the question, to whom did he make the payment? Or he ransomed us. You know, again, to whom did the ransom, to whom was the ransom paid? And this was an early idea, an early view held by Origen in this third century. And Origen argued, well, obviously not to God. He wouldn't have paid a debt to God. And so he reasoned it must have been to Satan. And so he thought that by virtue of the fall, we had fallen out of favor with God, but we've become under the influence of Satan. And now Satan has some um, power over us and we have an obligation to him that needs to be met. And so the ransom is paid to him to free us from him so that God could bring us back to himself. Um, that fails to answer a number of scriptures. I'm not going to read all those right now, but um, I think Origen just really didn't want to have to reckon with the fact that God wanted his wrath to be appeased. And so it was simpler to, to think that the, the problem is Satan and the debt needs to be paid to him. He also, though, believed that, that uh, in this bargain where Christ pays for our sin with his own life, that Satan is somehow deceived and um, shortchanged in the bargain. So the idea seems to be that Christ is to die. And then by his resurrection, Satan loses his hold of Christ. And so he is somehow shortchanged, which uh, also flies in the face of the justice of God. So the whole idea is really strange to us. Another theory, which was even earlier than the one by Origen, is one promoted by Irenaeus in 2nd century A.D., and it is sometimes called the recapitulation theory. And he draws this idea, or at least partially, from Ephesians 1.10 that says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So this idea of, of summing up all things in Christ. To recapitulate is to, to sum things up and to restate them. So Irenaeus taught that Christ, the last Adam, lived and succeeded in every area in which Adam and all his posterity had failed. So as an infant, as, as a child, as a teen, as an adult, in every area in which we fell, Christ lives through all these stages and he succeeds in all the ways that the first Adam fails. And so he has said, Christ has said, the last Adam has said to have, to rethought, to respoke, and to relived the entire scope of human existence since the fall of Adam. 
And by doing this, Christ reverses the effects that were incurred by the first Adam. Those who are united to him by faith receive immortality and an ethical transformation of life. And his obedience compensates for the disobedience of Adam. This view of the atonement does not really emphasize forgiveness, but rather Irenaeus emphasized Christ affecting what he would have called our deification. And the idea really is the restoration of the image of God within us. It's been marred by the fall. And so through Christ, obedience and, and sacrifice, this has been restored. And so the primary purpose of the incarnation is to recreate in man the image of God. The reestablishment of the image of God is given as a priority over the removal of guilt. Interestingly, as he draws parallels between Christ and Adam, he also draws parallels between Mary and Eve. And uh, in ways that Eve failed, he would say that Mary succeeded. And so he links those two together. Another, um, kind of to our ears, very strange idea of atonement. A third view is the satisfaction theory. This is one that is advocated by Anselm. The satisfaction theory teaches that atonement was absolutely necessary. And he grounds it in the very nature of God. Sin consists of the creature withholding from God the glory that's due him, the honor that's rightfully his. And we would agree with that. By our sin, we've robbed God of his glory. And the very nature of God demands vindication. And this could be done by punishment. Eternal wrath or by satisfaction, the death of Christ. Anselm, by the way, is I believe one of the first people to have given a great amount of thought to this and, and uh, written out um, his view and you know, he, he develops it further than the previous people had. So Anselm argues that Christ rendered obedience to the law. But his obedience to the law where we would call it an active obedience that merits righteousness, not for Christ, but for us. Anselm would say that it is what was expected. It's the duty that any man should give to God. You obey God. And so Christ's obedience was not in any way meritorious. It was just what's expected. It's duty. But then, he would argue too, because Christ was sinless, he was under no obligation to die. And so his death was meritorious. It's like going above and beyond the call of duty. And so that was meritorious. And it brought great glory to God in such a way that God offers him a reward. But Christ, being the second person of the Godhead, doesn't need anything. And so the reward is passed on to us. And it's through means of that reward, one through Christ's death alone, that sinners are offered forgiveness of sins. There's a lot that's familiar here in Anselm's view, but there's also some things that are kind of short of the mark. His view does not adequately, adequately deal with the justice of God. Rather than justice, the problem is an offended honor. God's honor has been offended and he needs satisfaction for his honor. It's not that the law has been broken 
and there's justice that needs to be done. And so the satisfaction is kind of removed from the idea of justice or any objective standard. Since this view does not adequately deal with God's justice, it also does not really give a place for the idea that Christ's suffering endured the penalty of sin and that his suffering was substitutionary. Rather than um, Christ being a substitute, he, he died for himself, but not needing to die, there's reward because it was such a, a great thing that he did. And so a disconnect with that. Again, while he recognizes passive obedience, the death, he does not recognize active obedience. And the offer of forgiveness to the people who receive it is a real, it's kind of an external transaction without any emphasis on union with Christ. So there's no idea of being united to Christ and because of union with Him, being accepted in the beloved. Satisfaction. A fourth theory developed, and it was called the moral influence theory. This was uh, advocated by a French theologian, Peter Abelard, and it was developed really in opposition to Anselm. This came along in the 11th, 12th century. According to this view, God did not require the payment of a penalty for sin. There's no call for satisfaction. Rather, Christ's death was simply a way in which God showed people how much He loves them by identifying with their suffering even to the point of death. This suffering did not serve to satisfy divine justice, but it revealed divine love. And by that revelation... To, um, by that revelation, human hearts were to be softened and led to repentance. Now, obviously, God does demonstrate His love to us, even at the cross. But there's more going on than just the demonstration of love. But that's all that, that Abelard sees. This demonstration of divine love was to assure sinners that there is no obstacle put in our way by God to keep us from coming to Him or to keep Him from pardoning our sin. The only requirement is that you come with a penitent heart. And then we in in gratitude are are moved to respond. So some truth there, but some error as well. not, Not enough. It doesn't cover enough ground. While the cross does demonstrate the love of God, the cross also demonstrates the justice of God and it vindicates Him. Um, the, the scriptures describe the atoning work of Christ as necessary, not primarily to reveal to us the love of God, but primarily to satisfy justice. So a number of issues. Another theory, a fifth, that evolved, and this one... Um, somewhat similar to the moral influence theory, and it is often called the example theory. This view was put forth by the Socinians in the 16th century, and it was largely in opposition to the view of the reformers. Socinus was offended by the idea that God demanded satisfaction. It just didn't seem reasonable to him. Where Anselm, in the satisfaction theory, demanded that justice is an immutable and necessary attribute of God's characters, Socinus disagreed. He states, If we could but get rid of this justice, even if we had no other proof, that fiction of Christ's satisfaction would be thoroughly exposed 
and would vanish. The whole idea of satisfaction is tied to this idea of justice. So if we can dismiss it somehow, then the other will fall also. He goes on. There is no such justice in God as requires absolutely and inexorably that sin be punished and such as God himself cannot repudiate. There is indeed a perpetual and constant justice in God, but this is nothing but his moral equity and rectitude, by virtue of which there is no depravity or iniquity in any of his works. Hence they greatly err who, deceived by the popular use of the word justice, suppose that justice in this sense is a perpetual quality in God and affirm that it is infinite. So the idea seems to be that justice is something that's outside of God. It's not tied to his character. And God can arbitrarily move his justice aside. And again, as, as he's already stated, if we can move justice aside, then we can move this whole idea of satisfaction aside. We don't have to then argue that God demands satisfaction. Sosinus viewed God's will as more central than his justice. God could choose to punish sin. God could choose not to punish sin. It's up to God. He is God, after all. He can do whatever he wants to. Our children, I think, would say he can do all his holy will. Um, So... He would argue, though, that God could do either one. He could choose to punish. He could choose not to punish. And there would be no intrinsic right or wrong in either choice. He's God. And if God chooses not to punish sin, then it's no longer punishable. God chose not to. God's the judge. And if that's the case, then why does Christ have to die? And he would argue that the death of Christ did not atone for sin And it did not move God to pardon sin. Rather, Christ's death is said to provide an example of how we should trust and obey God, even if that trust and obedience leads to death. And so, kind of like the moral influence, but it is different. The moral influence theory of the atonement really emphasized, here's how much God loves us. See how much God loves us. You should should come to Him. He loves us so much. Where the example is more an emphasis on how you should live. See how Christ lived. See how he trusted the Father. You trust him also. You live like he lived. And he might have well quoted 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And that's true. But there's more. Let me give you one other. And then we'll move to um, what I understand to be a biblical view of the atonement. This next one is sometimes called the governmental theory. Some people have viewed it as a middle ground between the Socinians and the Reformers. The Dutch theologian Hugo Grotius, however, who came up with this view... I don't think he viewed it as a middle ground as much as he viewed it as a biblical response to these two people who are in error, these two groups who are in error, you know. Grotius was a prominent lawyer 
And he defined law as a, God's law as a positive statute. Not just something that flows from the character of God, but something that God has determined this, this is what the law will be. So outside of himself, God says this will be law, this will be law, this won't be law. You know, everything's a positive statute. And so he states, it is not something inward in God or in the divine will in nature, but is only the effect of his will. And as the product of his will, God's not bound by it, but is free to change it entirely as he sees fit. He can determine that's a bad law. Or he can say this law is for this long of a period of time, and then it won't be a law anymore because I want to do something different. All positive laws, he says, are relaxable. (laughs) You can relax the standard. Those who fear... That if we concede this, do an injury to God because we thereby represent him as mutable or changeable, he says, are much deceived. It's not an inconsistency in God to change his law from one thing to another or to relax his standard, Grotius argues. Now this is obviously contrary to how we understand the divine will. We understand God's will as being inseparable from his nature and his law as being inseparable from his nature. W.G.T. Shedd, another theologian, writes, God's law is not positive and arbitrary, but natural and necessary because it flows out of his essential being. When you think about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, these are not just you know, arbitrary ideas that God dreamed up and thought, hey, this, this would be a good one, and that, you know, that, that would be a good one. There's still some space on the stone, let me think of one more. No, these are all things that flow naturally from Him and necessarily from Him. They are reflections of the divine nature. And one of the reasons they don't change is because He doesn't change. But because Grotius viewed the law the way that he did, he could also view the penalty that it carries as arbitrary. Rather than as a natural or necessary component, it's whatever God decides it is. And if he relaxes the law, he can relax the penalty of the law as well. So God determines what the law is. He determines what the penalty will be. Grotius would not deny that sin deserves punishment. The question is, must sin be punished? And he would say no. Grotius did not view God as an offended party or as a creditor to whom a ransom needed to be paid. Rather, he viewed God as the supreme moral governor. He rules all the created order and he keeps things running smoothly and in order. And he acts in the interest of the common good. Because Grotius viewed God that way, he viewed God's reaction to sin in terms of responding in ways that are related to the interest of public law and order, but not necessarily justice. Keep things, you know, in their place. Which, again, kind of argues the question... Why did Christ have to die? If, if the point is not justice, but just good moral order, and you can relax laws and relax punishments, then why does Christ have to die? 
And the answer from Grotius's viewpoint seems to be this. It's not that there needs to be a penalty for sin or that there needs to be satisfaction made. It's nothing to do with the inner nature of God. It has more to do with, with the moral order. Keeping order. People need to know that sin is serious. And so there's a necessity here. It's the necessities of the moral order make it unsafe for God to exercise His power and right of remission of penalty and to remove it completely. And so as a picture of how terrible sin could be, Christ dies. So again, referring to the theologian W.G.T. Shedd, he says, On the ground, therefore, that the interest of the creature need it, and not on the ground that the attributes of the Creator require it, must there be an atonement to remission. So God's act, work of atonement is a response to us and our need, not a response to Him. It's not so much the satisfaction of the justice of God as it is that for us, to, to live in this universe of moral order, we need this to happen. It's a very manward act in Grotius' viewpoint and not a Godward act. Well, there are some, a couple of other theories out there. Some of them kind of repeat some of these ideas in different proportions. I'm going to move on from those. If you want to know more about those, I can point you um, in toward a few resources to help. But I want to move away from that now and let's move on to what I understand to be a biblical view of the atonement and that is one that would be often called penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal has to do with punishment. We hear it in the word penalty or penalize. Atonement is necessary because there's a punishment assigned to sin and it is a punishment that is due to the people who have broken the law and offended the lawgiver. But then you also have the word substitution. How is it that we're saved and forgiven of sin and aren't charged the penalty of our sin? Well, it's because there's a substitute. Someone has come to stand in our place and pay the penalty that we owed. And having paid the debt that was ours, we don't owe the debt any longer. It's been paid. And that... Someone is Christ Jesus. Christ comes and He atones for us. Another way you hear this sometimes is uh, speaking of Christ's vicarious suffering. Vicar or vicar is a substitute. Someone who represents someone else. His vicarious suffering is His suffering on behalf of someone else. And He's suffering on behalf of someone else to God to pay the penalty that's yours. And so the atonement is not really primarily a manward act. It's a very Godward act. We benefit, but the atonement is, is reckoned or, or paid toward God. The penalty is one that we owe to God. Christ pays the penalty. By paying the penalty, He satisfies the justice. He appeases the wrath of God. He, he propitiates. One writer describes it this way. The doctrine of penal substitution states 
that God gave Himself in the person of His Son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin due to us is death, punishment, curse. But God gives Himself in the person of His Son to suffer instead of us. Penal substitution. And that is what Christ is doing in the atonement. By atoning for us towards God, by becoming the propitiation for our sins, Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. Piper, in, in very Piper-esque language, says it this way. If God did not punish His Son in my place, I am not saved from my greatest peril, the wrath of God. And so he goes on and he says, we have our only one hope and it is this, that the infinite wisdom of God might make a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that I might become a son of God. The infinite wisdom of God makes a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God, to make us children of God. Now, as we looked at those various theories, there's a measure of truth in each of them, except perhaps the ransom. There's still a ransom. <laughs> it's not to Satan. But there is a ransom paid. There's a price paid. So there's a measure of truth in each of them. But none of them completely answer the question. None of them fully satisfy what the Bible says must be done. But when you think about those different Theories of the atonement. You know, Satan was defeated. The, the image of God is restored. The ill effects of Adam's fall were reversed. God's righteous rule was vindicated. And an example has been given of the love of Christ and the self-sacrifice provided by Jesus as an expression of the incomparable love of God for sinners voluntarily suffered, who, who voluntarily suffered the penal consequences of the law of God, the just for the unjust, Dying our death, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Those things happen. But penal substitution also answers the question of the justice of God. That is an expression of his character. It appeases the righteous wrath of God and vindicates God even as he forgives me. Everything that God does is consistent with his own character. His unchanging character. And atonement explains how he is both just and the justifier of those being saved. How is it that God can forgive you and overlook your sin? Well, he overlooks your sin because he's paid for your sin through his son. He's just. He has not in any measure relaxed his law or relaxed the penalty of his law. He has not in any measure forgotten about his honor or any other aspect of his character that's been slighted. Every bit of that has been answered in Jesus Christ so that he's completely just, even as he justifies you and me. Well, again, we've spent a few weeks looking at the Old Testament offerings, sacrifices. And I don't believe, as you look at those, that any of them point to those various theories that are put forward. They, they all there's a disconnect. 
And so when you get to the New Testament and you see that Jesus is the sacrifice that they're all pointing to, you know, if you become offended at the idea that God must be appeased, then it's hard to look back at the Old Testament and say, well, yeah, they're talking about Jesus, but, you know, really it's, it's a moral government thing. And I mean, they just don't make sense in that, that kind of understanding. But when you look at them and you see that Christ is indeed the sacrifice or the offering that pays the penalty of my sin and appeases the wrath of God and, and, and offers forgiveness to me because God's wrath has been appeased and atonement has been made, those fit, those pieces fit. And so when you look at Leviticus 1 or 4, when they bring the burnt offering, or in chapter 4, when they bring the sin offering, and you bring this animal to the altar and you put your hand on the head of the animal, you're recognizing this animal is a substitute. It's doing what I'm supposed to do. It's about to die. And you confess your sin over this animal. And you slit its throat and kill it. And the animal is cut into its various parts and the blood sprinkled on the altar. And the, the animal is offered by fire and it goes up a soothing aroma to the Lord. God is being appeased. Or in, in chapter 4 and verse 20, you, you go through this procedure I've just described. And it says that the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. He's making atonement. By offering this sacrifice so that you'll be forgiven. Forgiven for what? Who's been offended? In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done. God commanded this not to be done. You've offended Him by doing it. And so you bring a sacrifice. And if it's not clear enough, the next verse says if it is uh, of the anointed priest, if anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect. It's an offering to God. It's not an offering to the devil. It's not uh, you know, this random cosmic whatever kind of offering. It is an offering to God. It's a sacrifice being made toward him because he's the offended party. And atonement's being offered toward him. And so when we get to the New Testament... It's the same thing that's happening. In Hebrews 9.26, speaking of Christ, says, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He hasn't come just to, to show you a, an example of how good a life you can live in obedience to the Father. Yes, obey the Father. But that's not why Christ died, just to give you an example. It's not the only reason. It's not the primary reason. It's not just so that there's this moral influence and you're impressed by the love of God. We should be impressed by the love of God. It's remarkable. But there's more at play than that. He comes and puts away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And how does He do it? Well, He does it by becoming a propitiation for our sins. By appeasing the wrath of God. By the way, He is the propitiation for our sins. These, these Old Testament sacrifices are, are propitiating. Where is a propitiation offered? Leviticus 16. Verse 
Leviticus 16, verse 14. Moreover, this is speaking of the high priest here. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Do you have a footnote there on the mercy seat? It's the propitiatory. He offers the propitiation on the propitiatory. He brings it to the mercy seat. And he sprinkles it there, some of the blood with his fingers, seven times. And then, again, Hebrews 9, that we read at the beginning, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He comes into the holy place before the mercy seat, not the copy, but the actual one, the place where God is. And there, what does he do? Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. He comes with his own blood. He comes once. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, a few weeks ago, you know, we were talking about how the Old Testament sacrifices, and indeed the Old Testament, is kind of a land of, of shadows and types that point to the antitype and the reality. And, and what we have in the New Testament is more like the noonday sun. It's clearer. Some of the things we see there are clearer than what we see in the Old Testament. But I use an example of being out in the woods if you've been in the woods as the sun's coming up or as the sun's going down, as the sun moves across the landscape, different things are, are in shadow or in the sunlight. And things that you didn't see a moment ago, now you see. And as shadows fall, you see, you see places in the landscape that weren't clear before. And I hope by looking back at these Old Testament sacrifices, even though it's shadows, that... What we see helps to lend some clarity to what we see in the sunshine in the New Testament. And it is very clear to you that Christ is the one who has met the obligations of the law. We are the transgressors of the law. He meets the obligation and he appeases God's wrath. Christ is the one who provides the blood that's necessary to cleanse us from the stain that our sins have produced by its pollution and the defilement that, that flows naturally from us as sinners. Christ is the one who has met the debt that's ours and paid the restitution that we could not pay. But He's removed it so that that is no longer there on the believer. And because He has done that, God has removed the obstacles that were in the way of us coming down. And through this new and living way, we are told to come with boldness, with confidence, into the place where the high priest could only go once a year. 